uh, Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. My name is Kyle Lee, and I'm, I have the privilege of serving here with this church as one of the elders, and uh, it is a great privilege to get an opportunity uh, to preach, and I'm just thankful for this church. I'm especially thankful for um, this the, last week's uh, text, and this week it's, uh, you know, when you prepare to preach, there's uh, a significant amount of uh, work the Lord does in your own heart in just reminding you and refreshing you in the goodness uh, of his word. And so I'm excited to bring uh, God's word together this morning. And we'll start in verse 24. We're going to finish uh, Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We'll start with verse 24 and 25. If you'd like to follow along with me, I'm reading from New American Standard, but you feel free to just follow along there in your text. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for the preaching, or excuse me, for your benefit, so that I might carry out the preaching of the word of God. And I think this morning what I hope uh, we see as I was studying what see woven through this is intimacy with Christ or the intimacy of Christ. Of course, in Colossians, what we've seen is Jesus Christ put on display as the supreme one. He gets all the attention rightly as the creator, as the one who holds all of creation together, the one who purposes and plans in our lives. But here we see some unique and special intimacy that comes from knowing Christ. It starts, I think, here with a stewardship. And so I'll start actually in verse 25. If you look there again with me, he says, Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he says, of this church... He means broadly the church, all the believers who are coming to faith in Christ. He says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me. The stewardship from God. The first aspect I would want us to see this morning, I think, is a personal stewardship. A personal stewardship. That's part of intimacy with Christ is that he gives to each one of us a personal stewardship. Of course, this has to first be founded in what Colossians has already established, and that is that God is the creator of all things. That may seem, in one sense, very obvious to you. That may be something that you have received that truth and accepted for a long time in your life. That may have been something that uh, you've never considered anything different. That God, of course, is the creator of all things. Maybe, though, you're here and that is a bit of a struggle, has been in your life. Maybe you haven't yet come to receive that truth that God is, in fact, the creator of all things. But that is a critical element when we think of stewardship. I heard it said, uh, well, I think, in a, in a little succinct statement, that owners own and uh, stewards manage. So owners own and stewards manage. But if we don't get that rightly oriented in our own lives, 
then we can become quite confused about this idea that God has entrusted to us a stewardship. If we think of us ourselves primarily as the owners of our own lives, the possessors of our own lives, then we are wrongly oriented towards this idea of stewardship. But when we receive what Colossians says, that it is God who made all things, and in fact Christ who was active in creation and is active in holding all things together, then we can rightly receive a stewardship from him and we can understand this. I want to note that this was not a unique thing to Paul. Paul, of course, had his own stewardship from the Lord. He had a stewardship as an apostle to the church. But what he speaks about here is a principle that's woven throughout Scripture of stewardship. We see throughout God's Word, Jesus, of course, he told the parable of the talents, maybe one of the more famous parables, something even that unbelievers would be familiar with, this story, this, this natural story that Jesus told in order to communicate and teach a spiritual truth about stewardship. He said there was a man, a, a wealthy man, who gave uh, to three different employees, those that he was entrusting with something. He gave to one five talents to another two talents, and to a third one talent. Now, a talent was an immense sum of money. Uh, even just a single talent was an immense sum of money. And each of these were to be responsible stewards for what was entrusted to them because the owner owned and the stewards were to manage. Now, you may be familiar with that story. The one with five and the one with two were faithful. They were diligent. They were hardworking with what God, with what the person in the story representing God had entrusted to them. And they, it just so happened that the one with two and the one with five both doubled what they had. But the one with one talent, again, an, an immense amount of money, the one with one talent was fearful and was not diligent was lazy, did not work hard, did not, in fact, work at all with what had been entrusted to him. In fact, he hid it, he buried it, and he did that, he said, out of fear. And the manager or the owner comes back to assess, receive the accounting of what had been stewarded, and we get this principle that all are entrusted and are responsible for what we do with the stewardship God entrusts to us. That lazy one, that one who was unwilling to work with what had been provided to him was condemned and told that it would be taken. It was actually taken away from him and entrusted to another what I want us to, I think, just see this morning here, there could be a lot said in God's word about stewardship, but I want to keep the focus on this idea of intimacy with Christ and really just ask the question whether or not you are finding submission on this point in your life. And what I mean by that is this call that you are to be a steward on behalf of the owner, God that he does in fact own our lives, that he possesses all things, and that my role is stewardship. I can tell you there can be a lot of resistance to that idea, and I know that personally, but there can also be a tremendous amount of freedom when you will come to submit to that truth, that my life is not my own. I know a couple weeks ago when Matt preached, he said, it's not about me, but for his purposes. This idea, this truth is so freeing, 
And it is the truth of God's word that he has bestowed, dispensed, or even your translation might say commissioned you with a stewardship. Well, it'd be right to consider what kind of stewardship it is. Every individual has a unique stewardship. God's word talks about our stewardship in referring to spiritual gifts. God's word talks about in Ephesians 4, your stewardship within the church, that is the body of Christ, meaning that this church only functions, this body only functions properly when it's functioning by what every joint supplies, what every individual part contributes. That's a critical element of your stewardship, of my stewardship from God. But we also see and recognize just practically in our own lives that our stewardship has to be an all-in kind of stewardship. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's talking about the stewardship that God has entrusted to him, and he says that it includes suffering. Now, that's not something we go out looking for. You and I would not sign up uh, needlessly, I hope, for suffering, because that's foolishness, okay? Don't do that. It's not something we want to pursue. We don't look around and say, how can I suffer most today? Uh, In fact, we usually wake up and think, how can I avoid suffering at all costs? Well, that's the little problem there, the at all costs, because God, in his sovereign purposes and plans for your life and for my life, your stewardship will very likely include suffering. Now, again, I don't want it to sound like this is common or most common experience of the believer. I think actually the stewardship God most commonly entrusts to us are these good gifts. He is the Father who gives good gifts, better gifts than could ever give. He is uh, the one who richly blesses. He's the one who freely gives all things that we might enjoy. That's the very common stewardship that you experience, that, that you are uh, experiencing the blessings of family, of, of work, and all of these things are stewardships that are blessings from God. But it's also true that the stewardship that comes from God can include suffering from time to time. This is not just a passing inconvenience. Paul knew suffering. Much could be said about that. I'll suffice just to say he was a man who when he spoke of sufferings, it was fair to say that within the church they weren't thinking, well, I don't think he quite gets it. He got it. He understood what suffering was. And he said that this stewardship that God had given and bestowed on him included suffering, but he also says that he rejoices in that suffering. Now, I wonder if we can receive that truth in a real personal way. First, to just recognize God's word says all who desire to live godly uh, in this present time will be persecuted, that there will come suffering, there will come difficulty, Jesus, of course, said if they persecuted me, Jesus speaking, then they will persecute you. That this is not something that we would go running after, but it's also not something that we ought to try to avoid at all costs. There is, and here is, I think, our central idea in this text, there is a special intimacy for the one who can rejoice in the stewardship of God 
even when that includes suffering. Paul, I think, gives us even a greater understanding of this in Philippians 3.10 when he said that I may know him. He's talking about just the fullness of the Christian life. What is the point? He says the whole point here is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and listen to this last part, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. Gosh, that is quite a unique view of suffering. I believe that it is true that you can and I can become either embittered by suffering or intimate with Jesus through suffering. I don't actually, this is the really hard truth. I hope you'll hear this, especially if you're encountered, encountering suffering. And I mean real suffering. There are times in which you suffer in life and it's, be, it's of no act of your own. There, of course, are times where we have sinned and we need to repent and that sin produces consequences in our lives. And often... Uh, we can kind of come to grips with that suffering a little bit better. Even that can sometimes, you feel, I've repented, I've, I've tried to move on, and yet the suffering, it seems to continue to press in on me. Those are times that are difficult times to suffer. There are other times where it was no act of your own. Someone else sinned against you and brought suffering in your life. Or the very uh, just act of living in a fallen world brought suffering into your life, into your family some sickness, some death, some difficulty. I want to tell you, I believe that God's word, even just in this simple truth, I, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, that the only other option is to become embittered in your suffering. That you can become embittered or you can become more intimate with Jesus. I think we'll see more of this intimacy in a moment. But this idea of the stewardship Thinking of our lives as a stewardship from God. Thinking of our suffering as a stewardship from God. Helps us to not be so fixated in a moment that we should be vindicated. No, not so fixated on how it should be corrected, but to become fixated on fellowship. That is a personal stewardship. You see the intimacy in that kind of view of our lives and what God has entrusted to us. But there's a last little phrase there in verse 24 that we don't want to bypass. It could cause confusion, and certainly we don't want there to be confusion. It says, uh, when he talks of his suffering, and even in his flesh, the suffering on behalf of the church, he says, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what do we mean by lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, as with all of God's word, we want to interpret and understand it within its context. It's within the context, the context of Colossians. And Colossians makes very clear, we have seen very clearly, that there is nothing lacking in terms of quality or sufficiency in the afflictions of Christ. The reason we can say that so confidently is because Colossians so plainly states that you and I, we looked at this last week, you and I were at war with God, we were alienated from him, and there was peace that needed to be made, but the only terms of that peace, you'll remember from last week, are a bloody cross. 
That's it. The afflictions of Christ on the cross are the only terms by which we come to uh, be at peace with God. So the afflictions of Christ he speaks of here are certainly not and clearly not anything to do with atonement. In fact, Jesus said on the cross as he gives up and as he is making this sacrifice, what does he say? It is finished. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, I'd encourage you just to note that even in your Bibles next to uh, this section of Colossians, you'll notice as I read this how similar it is to the the truth that's presented in, in Colossians. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Sounds familiar, right? And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. But listen to this. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It cannot be escaped or overstated that the work of atonement is totally complete in the bloody cross of Christ. That work of atonement is complete. So what does he mean? Well, I think it's actually easily understood just in this this truth of stewardship that you and I right now, today, think of this. In this time, in Bolivar, in this church, in the community we live in, You are and I am serving on behalf of Christ for his church. That will include some difficult times. You will have to not make up for the atoning work of Christ, but Christ in you will serve out an affliction, a course even from time to time of serious affliction for the church. The church at large has experienced this at various times in histories at various levels of intensity. You know that the church has been greatly persecuted in different areas and in fact today is greatly persecuted. Those people, and we ought to also understand when we read this, that that's what he's talking about. A stewardship in Christ that includes the the afflictions of Christ, meaning people who are offended by Christ. People who come against Christ, you will, listen, you will store up, you will pay up if you're following, if you desire to follow Christ, even here, even in a place where in a couple days we'll celebrate, you know, freedom and independence, and that's great. We can gather and worship together, but even in a place like this, you will have a responsibility to make continual, this continual offering before a people who come against Christ. We want them to come to faith in Christ, and part of our stewardship is this work, even in the midst of afflictions. But the main point, I think, of this text is verse 26 and 27. It is a mystery that is revealed. There on your notes, the second point, a mystery revealed. Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27 speak of this mystery. It says, That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. 
I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. When it comes to mysteries, they're pretty intriguing, right? I mean, for instance, if I were to say there is a mystery revealed, get ready for it next week. That would just stir a little bit of, you know, one you'd read ahead, right? You'd just do it, okay? You wouldn't say, oh, I'm just going to wait for next week. There is an anticipation that is stirred up with that idea. There is a curiosity and a wonder, uh, right? A desire for discovery. I think these are gifts from God. Part of, uh, part of God's uh, gift to humanity uh, is this ability to uh, discover and to be curious and to have wonder and, and to uh, move forward in understanding and knowledge. I think these are gifts from God. But we see, of course, in our world and the Colossians we're seeing that sin can greatly distort this seeking after a mystery. And you experience that just in the world around you today. It seems that there is always some new fad that is going to solve the mystery of life. Right? I mean, if you looked at all the books that are made and, and all the different, you know, stories about this and the new uh, pursuit that, you know, it's, 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 it, it moves into new age stuff. It, there's all sorts of things. Everybody's trying to answer this mystery of life. I was thinking about that a little bit this week and reading some random stuff on the internet, which I'm, you know, it's a waste of time, to be honest. But one internet blogger kind of summed it up when they said this. I'm not sure what the answer is. I've tried a variety of methods. It's infuriating, but that is human nature. We will forever and always be searching for something more, something better, something new. You know, actually, God's word warned some in the church when Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, there are some who are always learning. 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This seeking after a mystery, this constant seeking. Well, the good news, if we could get a hold of that internet blogger, and as we seek to get a hold of the world around us, the good news is there actually is something to find. There actually is an answer to these mysteries of life. In fact, the mysteries of life are answered for us. Now, I will tell you, not every mystery is revealed in Scripture. There's not a Bible verse that's going to tell you this morning whether or not the Loch Ness Monster is real, okay? You're not going to get that. But, hear this, every mystery that pertains to life and godliness is revealed in God's Word. Every mystery. So you have these big, amazing questions like, why, uh, how did I get here? Or why am I here? But you look at God's word and even Colossians 1, 16, look at what it says. It, it, how did I get here? For by him all things were created. Here's just one of the great mysteries of life, just simply answered. By him all things were created. They, there at the end, you might ask, well, but why am I here? All things have been created through him and for him. You ask yourself, how did I get here? I was created by Jesus. And why am I here? I was created for Jesus. These great mysteries of life, they are in fact answered in God's word. Now the point of contention comes when we are unwilling to receive the answer that God's word has delivered to us. 
Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead to prove that he could answer the questions of life for us. Now listen, you may not, like that question right there, that may, be not, may not be one where you're out searching a whole bunch of different answers. You've, you've settled the question of how did I get here? God created me. You've settled the question of why am I here? Uh, you know, it's for Christ. But you might be out there searching a lot of really uh, questions that, that are dealing with how do I deal with my emotions? How do I uh, deal with my workplace? How do I de-? And you're searching all sorts of sources when the word of God is here to reveal that to you. It wants to answer those questions for you. It uses the word mystery in this case and in other cases a few more times actually in the book of Colossians. We'll see it. But uses the word mystery to describe something that was not previously known that is now being revealed. Okay, so it's not something that continues to be unknown but something that is in fact being revealed that you can come to understand. So verse 26, again, it says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past. Here we see it was previously hidden from the past ages and generations, but it now has been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here we see there is a mystery that was hidden that God is now willing to be made known and be made known to all, to both the Jews and the Gentiles, to everyone. And what is the mystery? Verse 27, it says at the very end, which is, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now there's more that can be said about the mystery of Christ. And in fact, I'll leave that to the other Kyle next week. Kyle Sini will be preaching. And this term, the mystery of Christ and uh, the treasures of knowledge and wisdom that come from knowing him uh, occurs again in chapter 2. But here I just want to see this truth, this simple truth, Christ in you. Now, I want us to remember in the context of what Colossians has just told us, what has it told us about God? It has told us that God is sovereign, that Christ is supreme, that he's in control of all things, that he rules over all things, that this is the Christ, which it now says, Christ in you. What has it said about you? You once were alienated and hostile in mind. And yet because of a peacemaking bloody cross, it can say Christ in you. There is so much power in that. When we just understand what he's unpacking the cross and what God's word is unpacking us, that Christ in you. Listen, all sorts of people coming to tell them these mysteries, Paul is trying to tell them, this is the mystery. This is the central mystery of life. It's been revealed that Christ comes to dwell in you. There's no other mystery that compares to the one that, that Christ fully redeems, that he redeems such to the fullest that he would come to indwell believers. And I want to tell you, from my own experience, that I believe you can live a lot of life thinking very little of this intimacy. I think you will be profoundly sorry that you did. 
Because this level of intimacy with Christ transforms who you are. It was, well, in three months, it will, about three and a half months, it will have been 20 years ago. Uh, my life was a bit of a wreck. I had returned uh, from a deployment uh, with the Marines, and uh, just my life was in a bit of chaos, uh, much of which I was causing by my own choices and my own sin. But by God's grace, I came under tremendous conviction, and he, in his graciousness, drew me back to himself. But one of the ways in which he did that was bringing me to a local church, a small church in Arvada, Colorado, is where I was at the time, and a pastor who just so happened this last kind of phrase in Colossians 1.27 was, uh, if I would call it his life tagline, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want to tell you, when he first kind of told me that, I was so distracted by the things in my own life, it was hard for me really to understand it at all. But after repeatedly hearing him emphasize Christ in you, Christ doing a work in you, Christ in you, Boy, that intimacy began to sink in and affect me in a transforming way. I believe that this intimacy of Christ in you really can't be overstated. When you feel mistreated, listen, when you feel mistreated, there is great solace and comfort Christ in you and with you. If you feel abandoned or lonely, I remember times of great loneliness where God applied this truth to my heart, you are not alone, Christ in you and with you. You know, sometimes it's because of temptation of sin, and in particular, we can be tempted of sin in a way that says, well, uh, no one's around, it's, it's just me, no one will know, and then the conviction of Christ in you, Christ with you. Sometimes you feel a bit complacent, uh, just kind of going through the motions, and then you return to this thought, the creator Christ in me. What an amazing truth. Sometimes you are not really sure how to pray, or what to say, or what to think, or what to do, and you need to spend some time just meditating with Christ in you, Lord Jesus Help me to know you, to know you maybe in the fellowship of your sufferings right now, maybe in the fellowship of your blessings as well, Christ in you and really, really with you in every moment of the day. That is a transforming truth. I, I know that because it transformed my life. This idea of surrender to Christ, Christ in me, this great call, nothing that you would earn, Nothing that you would deserve, and yet this amazing truth that Christ comes to dwell in believers. He is with you. Not only is he with you, what is the rest of that mystery? It says, Christ in you, a hope or the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Christ in you now and sharing in God's glory. This is so totally amazing 
I'm certain I could not, uh, if, if we spent the whole time for uh, weeks and weeks and months on end, we couldn't totally scratch the surface even of this idea of being a sharer in Christ's glory, but sufficient to say that God's word makes it clear that apart from your ability to earn it or deserve it in any way, totally separate from that, this is what Romans 8 teaches, comes on the heels of Romans 9, where it talks about just being dead in your sins and just this constant repeat of sin and then it talks about freedom that comes in Christ and then as it's kind of summing up that teaching in Romans 8 17 and 18 you can read that it talks about our adoption as sons and daughters and then it says this amazing thing about being a co-heir and a sharer in the glory of Christ and then it says in Romans 8 18 one of my favorite verses it says for the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. And in us and, and around us that we come to share in Christ's glory. Now listen, Christ remains Christ. He is the sovereign. He is the supreme. But you and I are welcomed into his glory. We don't have time to go too far in depth. But another uh, text I would encourage you just to note is Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, about uh, I think about the 12th verse, it begins to describe the marriage feast of the Lamb. That is the, the church all the believers throughout the course of history who have come to faith in Christ are gathered together for this celebration, this celebration, this marriage feast of the Lamb. And here they come. They are dressed in white and purified. They are come, coming holy based on Christ's righteousness and His holiness to share in this feast a feast of glory, to share in his glory. Just after that, just after that, Revelation 19 describes the second coming of Christ. It describes Jesus coming on this white horse with a crown, uh, just many crowns, this amazing display of his glory. His name is written on him, and he is on display for all the world to see, riding on a horse. This is the description of the glory of Christ as he's coming back, coming to world and you look in the midst of that the armies in heaven who were clothed in white are riding with him on white horses he does all the work he does all the judgment but you come along sharing in his glory that is a real promise those are real days I mean, we, it, you can spend a lot of time meditating, and you should, thinking about that day, because it's coming for you. If you're a Christian, you will one day be with him in his glory, and you will be a sharer in that glory. That is intimacy with Christ. Your intimacy with Christ, it continues right from the last breath of this life or his return. It continues all the way into eternity, your intimacy with Christ. He holds nothing back. It's so totally amazing. Christ who would deserve to reserve and hold back from us because of our sin, because of the cost even of redemption, because of all of these things we could think of, he holds nothing back. He comes to us and he brings the fullness of his presence in our hearts now and the hope of sharing in his glory. 
Last idea this morning is that this intimacy is to be delivered to others. That's what Paul was getting at, really, when he talked about his stewardship. He, of course, points out what is the thing being delivered. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But he talks here about the manner in which it is delivered. It's intimacy delivered to others. Verse 28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing or warning every man and teaching every person with all wisdom. Listen to just those three words, proclaiming, proclamation, admonishing or warning, and teaching. Proclamation, it simply means to speak of. I was at the youth camp with our teenagers a couple weeks ago, and one of the breakout sessions, one of the morning sessions, the guy was sharing and teaching from God's Word, and he, I thought he had a right correction. I'd heard, I've heard this quote before. I'm not even sure if Francis of Assisi really said this, but you might be familiar with that quote that says, you know, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And uh, this guy that was uh, teaching at the camp, I thought he did a good job of, of kind of correcting by saying, well, if he did say that, what he should have said is preach at all times. It's necessary. Use words. That's, that's the emphasis of God's word. Preach at all times. It is necessary. You've, we've got to proclaim that Christ in you is a hope of glory. We've got to proclaim that there is a peacemaking bloody cross. We have to proclaim that, and we proclaim it by using words. The spoken, the written word, we declare that Christ is the way. We proclaim him. That's how we deliver intimacy from one person to another, that intimacy of Christ. Well, another way that goes right alongside that, of course, is admonishing or warning. We would want to warn if we could, if I could contact that internet blogger who says it's just infuriating. I would warn you, oh, your life will be infuriating and never satisfied if you don't turn to the one who can answer these questions. It, you, you will always be looking for something better until you find the best. And if you don't find Christ, then you must be warned from looking in other places. We must admonish one another. Now, that doesn't come just before we come to faith in Christ. The same thing with the proclaiming. We're speaking to one another who are believers in Christ, admonishing one another, warning one another. And the last word there of the three, he says teaching. That is a, a, a Greek word. I'm sure I can't say it right, but it, we get the uh, English word didactic. So that word didasko, uh, the Greek word here, teaching. Uh, we get didactic. You may have heard of uh, the didactic method of teaching, which really all that means is explaining something, showing how to do something. If you've ever read a how-to you know, book or watched a video of uh, how to do this, that's the didactic method. They're explaining, teaching you something, communicating something to you. Now here, I want you to grab this because this, I, I think, uh, as I was praying and, and, and just thinking about this, in one sense I'm thinking, yeah, that's just that's the awesome truth of God's word. But we don't want to miss it in the context of the intimacy of Christ because here's something that can happen. Someone can stand up in a church or come talking to you about intimacy of Christ. They can talk about Christ in you and you can think... I've thought before that that sounds a bit mystical. 
I don't know how to get that thing you're talking about. It sounds like you have something, and this is what was creeping in on the Colossians. It sounds like some people have something that someone else might not get. But here is the truth of God's word. How do you get deeper intimacy with Christ? It's through the proclaiming of his word, the admonishing of his word, the teaching of his word. You have access to that word of God and you can become in, you can come into deeper intimacy or as verse 28 explains it, completeness or maturity in Christ. This isn't mysticism. This isn't, well, you just might not get it figured out. That's nonsense. That's a distraction from the enemy. It's what was happening to the Colossians, this idea, well, you've got to add. Yeah, that, that, that cross is nice, but there are some things to layer up alongside of that. It's nonsense. How do we become more intimate with Christ? We hear and we speak, even proclaim to ourselves the truth of the gospel. We warn ourselves about the dangers of sin. And we teach ourselves. We grow. We come to church and we gather together for the teaching of God's word. We read God's word in order to learn and to understand that he might explain, God's word might explain to us these mysteries of life, this truth of life. And by it, we grow in intimacy with God. That is quite powerful. It's quite marvelous. It might seem quite simple, but I will tell you it's also quite avoided. A lot of times we would like to have intimacy with Christ sans studying his word. That's just the truth. that We would like to have it, but we just can't quite make time for that or that kind of, uh, wow, I don't know. That sounds good someday, but not for me, not right now. Wow, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can grow in deeper intimacy with Christ today, even this morning. We can come to understand God's word. Last point this morning, or the last idea here is, how is this delivered? Lest we think that there's any power of ourselves to communicate intimacy with others and uh, I think Oswald Chambers said it well when he talked about preaching and hearing the preaching of God's word. He said something to the effect of, you've never heard a good preacher. That just doesn't happen. You've only heard the truth of God's word declared as the Holy Spirit enlivened it to your heart that you might come to understand it. And this idea that the power, verse 29, the power is from God. For this purpose, he says... This is Paul. He's doing a lot for the church. I mean, a lot of work being had at his hands, at his mouth, at his writing. But he says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. That the power of Christ, even in the delivery of intimacy from one to another, this intimacy with Christ that can be delivered, that it comes in the power of Christ. It's right here, it states it plainly, it's right to labor and to strive, but the power, the fuel, the, the energy of that comes 
from Christ. It comes like we read in Acts 1a uh, this morning. Uh, Matt read as we began our service. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon you and you have power. That power is dynamite. Dunamis is the word. Dynamite power. You have explosive power to be able here to communicate the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I challenge this morning for myself as I've prayed about this this week. Like I mentioned, it's something that has been significant in my life. Many mornings waking up just thinking and enjoying the idea, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I would challenge you to find great enjoyment in that but also to make sure that if you are not experiencing intimacy with Christ, that you see what God has outlined for you to be able to receive that intimacy. Don't miss that. Don't be like the Colossians, some that were drawn away as though there was some other way to have intimacy with God. There is a way. His word has delivered it to us. You can come to know him. You can meditate on Colossians 1 and come into deeper intimacy, deeper understanding as that word of God is taught and understood so that you might walk in faith. And if you have not, as we mentioned last week, if you haven't yet come to the peacemaking bloody cross, then there is no intimacy to be had with Christ until you come in faith to the cross. But there is, when you do, a great intimacy to be had in Christ because he is in you and your hope of glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what it accomplishes. Even this morning, as we think of your word, it draws us into a deeper intimacy with Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would understand. I pray that I would understand even more fully that we might come to Be warned that we might come to be taught, Lord, that we would understand that Christ in each one of us, Lord, is a hope of glory. That you are with us. I pray that uh, later this afternoon, I pray that later this week, I know there are some that are right in the midst of suffering, right in the midst of injustice, and there is a great temptation from the enemy to make them embittered. Lord, I pray that instead they would find intimacy with Christ. Lord, I pray, God, we we beg you. We know our hearts. God, we know that we are prone to think only of ourselves. And yet there is an intimacy with Christ that is the great joy of life. And so I pray that we would just be refreshed in that this morning. Lord Jesus, you are ours and we are yours, and we praise you, God, for that, all because of your cross. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.